All right. So are, are we going to indulge in some stereotyping now? Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, how are you doing today? Um, aren't you going to wish me a Merry Christmas? I have declared war on Christmas. In what way? I, <laughs> uh, a TBD, you know, uh, a wise general doesn't reveal his strategies in advance. I see. But you know that this episode will air actually on Christmas Day, on, on uh, Ju- uh, June, <laughs> on December 25th. Oh, can we call it against Christmas? Uh, maybe, maybe. We got so many against, don't we? We're against everything, aren't we? That's our new brand, yeah. <laughs> Actually, are you, uh, you know, this is, now it's not fashionable to say Merry Christmas. It's, it's, it's more fashionable to say Happy Holidays. Do you have any opinions about this? Uh, no. I, I think I say back whatever people say to me. Like, I have no objection to saying Merry Christmas to people. I feel like it's mostly a secular holiday in the U.S., uh, I don't know. Is that is that a U.S. Canadian difference? It's secular here too, right? Yeah, it, it is definitely secular. Although I have never ever celebrated Christmas in my life, uh, and I it's I find it amazing. I've met more and more non-Christian people who do, in fact, celebrate Christmas by Christmas tree, have presents, of the whole thing. Yeah. So there were Jews in Santa Barbara that would get Christmas tree, but they would call it a Hanukkah bush. Right. Is that you're familiar with this? I have heard of the concept of a Hanukkah bush, but uh, never partook. I feel like that's BS. Yeah, I think it's BS too. Yeah, uh, I'll be honest. I would love to have a tree. I think I think they're beautiful and I think they smell great. And it's not religious whatsoever. I would love to have it, but I just think I would have to like turn my Jew card uh, to have <laughs> your, your J card would be forfeit. Yeah, I agree. It's it's too bad because yeah, they they are they have all those nice attributes that you mentioned, and yet it just feels wrong somehow. Yeah, yeah, but other religions are easier with it. Uh, not, 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 not the Jews so much. Well, yeah, we're, we're rule obsessed. And one of the rules is no Christmas trees. <laughs> right. Sorry, buddy. So instead we have to, uh, elevate a really, it's basically a non-holiday, right? I mean, so Hanukkah is our, you know, our competing holiday and it's not even considered a holiday in Judaism. It's a festival. So it's, you know, it is an event. It's, it's marked on the Jewish calendar, but it's, not a holy day, a holy day. Um, but yet, you know, so I, we, we, we do it and it's, it's lots of fun with the kids and eight presents over eight days or the whole thing. Although I never got that. I got like one lousy present. Uh, in my best ever present ever in my entire history as, as, as a child in Hanukkah was a like a $15 calculator. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it explains some things, you know, your <laughs> deprived childhood. <laughs> Yeah, it is funny though, right? Like it's obviously, you know, we need Christmas counter-programming and what have we got of this thing? Um, So we we make a much bigger deal out of it than it is like as a religious holiday. Um, I I did get gifts on the... You know, the nights before the last night, which is traditionally the big night, but they were they were often like pretty small and somewhat disappointing. Right. So like I feel like it was overhyped that you're like, oh, wow, but we get like eight nights of gifts. But yeah, like seven of those eight nights, the gifts are not going to be that exciting. Yeah, like a pair of underwear. Yeah, exactly. Here's some socks. Enjoy. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> not exciting. Although we, you know, we we go all out for for our kids uh, and I'm, I'm excited. I got a, a bunch of cool presents that I'm looking forward to my kids opening. So. Let's talk about the beer we're drinking, shall we? Yes, I think we shall. Uh, this is a, I, 
it's possibly our most special beer because it was the beer that uh, was probably the hardest uh, to get to us. Um, so this was a beer donated to us, donated to us by a listener um, named Stuart Campbell from Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, he is uh, he follows us on Twitter, and. Um, I think over the summer he had mentioned buying some beer from the East Coast, uh, from Nova Scotia, from Cape Breton specifically, and he wanted to, you know, stop and, you know, find where we lived and, and, and drop off the beer. That never happened this past summer. But then uh, about a month and a half ago, I got a package in the mail uh, at my my university, you know, department office. And it was, you know, this official packaging and it was glassware. And I'm like, I, I didn't, I don't remember ordering any glassware, fragile. So I was curious. It was some equipment that maybe I forgot order, I, I forgot that I ordered. And I opened it up and was delighted to find that it was actually uh, four cans of beer. So it was not glassware at all. Um, but, but Stuart is a crafty fellow because he knows that uh, you cannot, at, in fact, send beer over provincial lines or, or, or over international borders. But he was able to do this by just not telling the postman that um, he's sending beer. So he did it. And I, and, and I, 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 I want to kind of lay down a challenge to our, especially our American listeners. Uh, you too can send us beer. Just don't tell the post office you're sending beer. And let's see if it gets to us. So please try. Nonetheless, uh, let me just kind of mention what the beer is. This is called um, a Kitchen Party Pale Ale. Uh, from Big Spruce Brewing, again, from Cape Breton, uh, Nova Scotia. And uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to to drinking some of it. Yeah, so I'm excited about this too. And thanks so much to uh, listener, what was his name again? Stuart, Stuart Campbell. S- Stuart Campbell for uh, being the one person resourceful enough to actually send us spirits through yes. the mail. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. I also want to maybe, uh, while I'm at it, um, give a little shout out to uh, Michael Wall, who is a um, professor at Carleton University. I just visited there last uh, last week, and he was kind enough to to give me a, a nice big bottle of uh, sour beer to me, not to you. Um, so uh, thank you very much, M- Michael. And uh, it was it, it was already imbibed, so none, you know, I didn't have time to drink it on the podcast. <laughs> Wait, so anytime anybody gives you a present, you're just going to thank them on the podcast? Is that what's uh, happening? I mean, I felt it was podcast related. I, I think you How, know. I don't, I, well, if you drank it without sharing it and uh, without bringing it on the podcast, I don't see how it's podcast related. Uh, I feel that if the podcast did not exist, he would not be gifting. Yeah, that, that makes it even worse. So it's it's not him that's at fault. It's me that's yeah, at fault. Yeah, no, no, no. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm the dick. Yeah, yeah. yeah You're well, the asshole, Mickey. Yeah, but we knew that. That's consistent with everything else you've heard. Exactly. About me. Yes. Exactly. So nothing new. And nothing new. All right. Well, let's see. We have a, a grab bag of fun holiday related. Well, really, not at all holiday related things, but uh, a fun grab of grab bag of things nonetheless, don't we? Yeah, we do. I I, I feel that we have been, uh, the past few shows, we've been kind of downery and not, you know, a a few kind of like, you know, bemoaning the state of the field and uh, I think lots of negativity. Yeah, just such a bummer constantly. Yeah, totally. It's it's amazing that people even listen. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. (laughs) Our listeners are going to like quit or kill themselves, you know, we're going to be left with nobody. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we had the idea of like a a Christmas gift or if you want something non-denominational, a holiday gift to our listeners. Um, Essentially, we're going to kind of uh, have observations about uh, observations of Canada from an American and observations of... uh, 
uh, the U.S. from a Canadian. Uh, so essentially, we're going to play with stereotypes a little bit. Um, but before we're there, we can't go completely light and positive. Uh, we do have to talk about one, or we, we thought it would be interesting to talk about one uh, weightier topic. And hopefully it won't be too negative, I, I hope. Um, so the idea behind this, this will hopefully just be a, a short uh, discussion here. Uh, uh, the last episode that aired was our episode Against Experiments, where we discussed, we read and discussed Augustine Brannigan's book, uh, The Rise and Fall of Social Psychology. And uh, there was a lot of Twitter discussion about it, so it seemed like the episode was well-received, at least by some. And uh, Jay Van Bavel said that he thought a lot of the discussion reminded him of this one paper by Bill McGuire, published in 2013. And this was a paper that was unearthed by, I believe, uh, John Jost was Bill McGuire's last student. And I think uh, John uh, went through his, uh, I guess, his, his records and, and somehow found this paper on his on a computer or printed out somewhere. Um, and it was published for the first time in 2013. And now we're not going to discuss the whole paper, but I thought we, it would be interesting to discuss one, I, I think, radical idea from the paper. Um, and see what see what you thought, you will. So I'm going to read one one line here, and this is essentially the the one line I want to discuss. So you know, it's kind of in the middle of a paragraph here, uh, and he says uh, that is, if a person of reasonable competence and seriousness states a hypothesis about a human social phenomenon, then it is almost inevitably valid. If the premises within which the person derives a hypothesis hold, then the hypothesized relationship would follow. So the idea here is that any logical proposition is bound to be true. And the only complexity here is finding out when it is true and under what conditions it is true. But the reason I say it's a radical statement is that it almost obviates the need for experiments. Because if a proposition is bound to be true. And if someone is a crafty enough experimentalist, or if we're talking about, you know, if they found archival data, if someone's a good finder of data, they are bound to find support for whatever statement they make. And to me, this, I, I have trouble with the statement, although I don't think it's false. Um, but I find it troubling nonetheless, because it, it kind of overturns, in, to me at least, what the point is of experiments. Experiments, to some extent, I thought are, I've always conceived of them as ways to ascertain whether hypotheses have support or don't have support. And he's saying that's not the point at all, because all statements will find support under one condition or another. So anyhow, radical idea, um, and it's possibly true. So I think I'm sympathetic to the broader point, but I really question the specific premise. Like, don't we have a lot of replication failures showing that, in fact, lots of hypotheses are false? Yeah. And so I think what Bill McGuire would say, and I think a lot of, uh, a lot of let's say, defenders of the status quo um, would say, so there's no such thing as a replication failure. It's just simply you haven't identified the conditions under which that hypothesis or that statement, that logical statement is true. So ego depletion, it's not the case that it's not real. We just haven't identified the precise, you know, context, situations, people, independent variable, dependent variable pairings um, that, you know, whereby 
this, you know, the statement can be found over and over again. This hypothesis can be found over and over again. Hmm. I mean, uh, well, the first thing that popped into my head for whatever reason is power posing and the specific prediction that you hold this expansive posture and it changes uh, your like stress hormones, right? Uh, the cortisol goes down. And that seems like a pretty specific disconfirmable hypothesis that definitely doesn't need to be true under any conditions, right? Like, do you think there's some like hidden moderators such that under some conditions, this is actually going to be true? Like, that just seems wrong. I mean, that seems, I mean, I think the statement is wrong for another reason, but let's, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Or not wrong, but I, I think maybe misguided it for another reason. But so you don't think, so, you know, you're having me in the position of defending power posing, which I never thought I'd ever I love be it. in a yeah. position to do. That's right. <laughs> but do you think that I could find some situation where that would be true, where I could get you to, to pose on, you know, uh, in a certain way for a certain amount of time and it's particularly meaningful for you. Um, and that maybe because you believe it to be true and whatever, some, again, some, some vague situation that I can't name right now, you don't think there's any situation whereby that could be true. Yeah. So that's the question, like how much freedom do you have to make the hypothesis really broad, right? So if, if the hypothesis becomes under some circumstances, the physical postures that people will adopt will affect their cortisol response. They'd be like, well, okay, yeah, maybe that that's a possibility at that level of breath. Um, but, you know, the hypotheses are usually specified a little more um, specifically than that, right? Um, it's holding this specific power pose for this specific amount of time. And so when you constrain it that way, then I think it's very easy for things to be false. Yes. I mean, I, I think you're right. But so, so McGuire's broader point is that we don't, you know, experiments or, or, or studies more generally, whether they be archival, observational, cross-sectional, um, they're, we're not doing, we're not engaging in them to confirm an hypothesis. We're engaging in them just to find those conditions, to, to find those exact predictions whereby power posing can be true. So we could come up with a, you know, a small little theory of power posing that defines and, you know, um, characterizes when such a statement, you know, might be true. Um, and I, I don't know, I believe that we could find such such situations. It might take like a long, long time. And, you know, we could, we could ask, you know, I think other questions like, should we really care to find the, you know, this, you know, the super specific nuanced situation when this is true? Um, but, you know, he's starting with a point of like, you know, everything is true. Even opposites are true. Right. So I guess I read that quote as being, implicitly a critique of overly general claims from a specific, uh, let's say, experimental finding, right? Like, so you design the experiment in the right way such that you find that X leads to Y, and then you say, as a general fact, X leads to Y, right? So uh, I think what he's saying is we ought to be a lot more careful about how we are willing to generalize from the specific studies to the kind of broader claims we want to make about people writ large. Yeah. It's such a provocative claim to me because, um, I mean, 
think for many of us, it's counterintuitive because we assume that what we're doing is trying to reveal these XY associations. And a crafty enough person will always find the XY associations. Right, right. And that, I at least as a like, kind of mm, generalizing statement, I, I do buy that, right? Uh, maybe not in every situation, but on average, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, I mean... <laughs> You well, you say this, and then like a lot of my experiments don't work. So, well, that's because you have weren't crafty enough. <laughs> you haven't searched far enough, you know, to find those, you know, those situations. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm just lacking flair, you know. That's right, lacking flair. You're a poor experimentalist, you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've grown to accept that about myself. Okay, well, I I'm glad that you brought this quote up, and I I think this is a a really interesting piece, uh, and uh, maybe we can come back to this in a future episode. Yeah, I, I would like to because it's quite provocative. Awesome. All right. So are, are we going to indulge in some stereotyping now? Yeah, I, I think I think we should. Uh, and this is, the, you know, that first, you know, 20 minutes or 15 minutes was the uh, as serious as we're going to get today. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's it's all downhill. It's all downhill. And I should say that this is uh, this is my third beer. So, uh, yeah, have- you've, you've got a head start. You've I haven't uh, I haven't drunk at all. And oh, man, I'm slow. Look, Mickey's ahead of yeah, me. Even on the uh, even on the third. Oh. Uh, yes, we had you know, we had our uh, weekly brown bag, uh, which was delightful because we had our um our MA students presenting their their kind of year-long project it's always kind of uh I think it's exciting uh when new students present because they're well you know I, I don't like that they're nervous but they're 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 so young and you know energetic and enthusiastic about what they're studying. Um, and usually, the faculty you know tend to go a bit easier because they're you know they're still learning. And it's just you know it's very optimistic and positive. And many of us we, we have a tradition at the University of Toronto, as you know, Yoel, of uh, going to pub after our our uh, brown bags on Tuesdays. And there was a good uh, turn up today. Um, and uh, I just uh, I had a couple of beers. What are you going to do? I, I approve. <laughs> I think you're making the right lifestyle decisions. Uh, so who's going to throw out uh, an, uh, an invidious stereotype first? Is it going to be me or is it going to be you? I think it should be you. So the, the idea here is, so you're, you've been living in Canada, what, for six years, five years? Uh, five years, I guess, since 2014. Right, yeah. five years. And you have not lived in Canada previous to this. Never, never. Right. Um, and so I, the idea here is kind of like... Uh, your perspective on Canada as an American, and I, I you know, I'm going to plant one seed here because I, you, you told this story to me a number of years ago, which I found hilarious and delightful, um, and, and hopefully you remember it. Um, and that was, um, I guess, you and, and some some other junior colleagues of ours. Um, you guys have played this game, which was, I think, the game was called Weird or Canadian. And you just kind of observed, you know, certain behaviors uh, that Canadians would engage in. And you're like, is that, fr- you know, freaky? Or, uh, should I be, you know, creeped out right now? Or are they just Canadian? Uh, so does this ring a bell at all? That's hilarious. No, I, I have zero memory of that whatsoever. Okay, well, I have one example. This, you know, it, it, you know, it resonated with me. So this is an example. I don't think uh, it was your example. It was an example that uh, our colleague uh, Jennifer Steller uh, came up with. And that is, I think, you know, she, she parked in a parking lot and um, maybe was sitting there for a couple of minutes, uh, uh, you know, maybe having a conversation with whoever, whoever, whoever else was with her in the car. And then at one point, she had someone knock on the window and this, it was dark, it was at night. Someone knock on the window and, you know, 
Jenny, who's American, um, I think that, that maybe the natural inclination, and this is again me stereotyping, it's like, I'm freaked out now. This is someone who might, you know, commit some act of violence, you know, towards me. Um, I should be scared. But nonetheless, she she rolled down the window and the person went up to her and said, I still have like a few hours left on my parking meter. Do you want my little pass? And Jenny thought it was, you know, you know, very nice but also kind of creepy and weird. <laughs> so that was the one example of, you know, weird or Canadian. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a great example because it it does like make salient the safety concern that I think you have coming particularly from big cities in the US where you know, there are uh areas in which you really do need to worry a lot about about violence and uh, you know, I mean, it's not like Toronto doesn't have any of that. Like there is some gun crime. People do get shot. But compared to other like compared to big American cities, I think it's so much safer. Um, and I, I really don't. Uh, you know, the story that I told on last uh, the last episode aside, I, I really never feel like I'm worried about physical safety here. And that's something that you like can't take for granted in probably I would say in most big U.S. cities. Right. There's there's areas that, that are kind of no go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have uh, um, well, I, I do have an experience with violence, not in, not in Canada, but but in the U.S. So I lived in the U.S. for was it seven or eight years uh, during grad school and um, my postdoc years. And um, I was a witness to a murder. Um, I've never heard this story. Yeah, I was a when I, I was just reminded of, of this story uh, from a friend of mine who who, who lives in New York. Uh, when I lived in New York, uh, we lived there together. Um, yeah, I was in I was in Williamsburg in Brooklyn and uh, where I lived and uh, just in our hood and uh, we're walking uh, by some shady bar and uh, yeah, we just kind of heard a few pops and kind of didn't really make much of it other than we just saw a bunch of people run away. Um, and I immediately, I was actually going to run towards the scene, but my friend was like, what the hell are you doing? You do not do that. And I just called 911 and called the cops. And yeah, I, and then the cops called me a few days later. And I was the only person, I was the only witness to this, to this, to this murder. Um, wow. That's it. That's intense. And, and also kind of dark. This is supposed to be the lighter segment know, <laughs> like straight away. We're like murders. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But it, it is true. It, it, it did. Uh, I did. I did witness that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So now that we've, you know, praised uh, Canada, I, I do have a question and I got to admit, this is like, you know, a very obvious Canadian stereotype, but this thing about Tim Hortons, like why? Okay. So I should back up for the people who don't know. Tim Hortons is like a coffee and it's like a Dunkin' Donuts kind of, except yeah, no, they, they have donuts, but they also have other things. They have like sandwiches and things. Um, so like Dunkin' Donuts meets McDonald's kind of breakfast food sort of. I'm doing a poor job of describing it. It's like a coffee and fast food chain. And Canadians are like fucking crazy about it. Like on campus, there's a Tim Hortons and there's a lineup there, which by the way, Canadian term that I'm now using all the time. Americans don't say lineup. Oh, really? Yeah, they just say line. Line. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You drop the up. Anyway, there's a line up there always. You have to wait like 20 minutes to order your fucking shitty coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and like bad excuse for a bagel. And I just don't understand it. Like, why? You know, I I think I am a, a poor, poor uh, Canadian here because uh, I also don't understand Tim Hortons. 
So Tim Orange is, uh, maybe give a little background, is uh, it was a coffee chain, I believe, started in the 60s, maybe in Hamilton, Ontario, or Southern Ontario, uh, for certain, um, by someone named Tim Horton, who... Of course, because it's Canada, was a hockey player, a, a professional hockey player who played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, and uh, yeah, people, it's true, they're gaga over over Tim Hortons. I'm, I, as, I'm from Montreal, from Quebec, and uh, it came later to Quebec, so I, I feel I don't have the full experience. But I did have a period of time where I really liked it, um, where it was, you know, on campus. Uh, now we've got Starbucks and uh, another, you know, uh, fancier coffee choices. But I also liked it, and, and you know, the donuts are, are yummy. Um but I, I, I'm not sure I can explain the fascination with Tim Hortons. Uh, it is a, it's a real, real weird experience. It's like as if every American loved Dunkin' Donuts and was like, oh my God, Dunkin' Donuts. We got to go to Dunkin' Donuts right now. We got to stand in line for half an hour to get Dunkin' Donuts. And it's like, I mean, it's not bad, right? It's, it, yeah, well, no, it's kind of bad, actually. Yeah, the coffee's terrible. The coffee's kind of bad. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, do the donuts are good. They yeah, have but, they have donut holes and they call them Timbits. Those are pretty good. Right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, those and, are yummy. Yeah, and they're basically free. <laughs> it's, <true. laughs> it's, got, it's got that going for it. <laughs> but yeah, okay. Well, I'm disappointed that you couldn't uh, enlighten me more. No, because it was not. I never, I never loved it myself. There was one short year where I, where I liked it, but that was about more because I was starved for choice. It could be that. It could be like there was no no real other options. Um, uh, but yeah, there's some strange fascination with it. I I, I agree. But is there wouldn't there be some equivalent in the U.S. again, maybe not not uh, an equivalent in terms of like you know coffee or donut, um, but some chain of restaurants that's like serves really mediocre food at best that Americans really like, like White Castle. Is that is that I mean. That's not very no, good. That's yeah, true. It's not very good. But I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like people get excited about White Castle in the way that Canadians get excited about Tim Hortons. Um, Shake Shack. Or yeah, no, that's true. But those are like, that's already like yuppie fast food, right? Like yuppie hipster fast food. But it's just a fucking burger and shakes. It's, it's not anything special. Yeah, yeah no, it's, but it's, it's good. Yeah. And it's hard to get. The thing about Tim Hortons is it's just everywhere. <laughs> right. It's like yeah. there's one in every corner. There are two on campus, in fact. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. There's there's the big one and then there's the stand, right? So yeah. Yeah, technically two. Um, I'm trying to think of like what would be the closest American equivalent. Like the Cheesecake Factory. Right. Is bizarrely popular. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been I was there once and whatever. <laughs> it's another mall restaurant. With a giant menu. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, what about, uh, I know it's a controversial place, but people line up for it. Uh, Chick-fil-A? Oh, yeah. I do love Chick-fil-A. So I never had it. I know it's like controversial because it's owned by what? Uh, yeah, uh, like they're like anti-gay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, but that is delicious. But again, I feel like that's a little more specialty. Like by the time you're like fried chicken sandwiches, that's sort of like a niche. Whereas Tim Hortons is just the most <laughs> generic. It really is like Dunkin' Donuts. Like you're just crazy about Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, you know? it's essentially Dunkin'. But are there not people who are crazy about Dunkin' Donuts? There are no, but there's no one like that. There, there are some people who are like, I really like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I actually count myself among those people. It's got this weird like aroma. It's probably like chemicals or something that they add afterwards that I that I find really nice. Uh, but it doesn't. It doesn't hold this central place in the consciousness of of America in the way that Tim Hortons sort of like defines what it is to be a Canadian. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we have so little UL. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's what it is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what else is it going to be? Okay, so so I've given Canadians a hard time. I feel like now it's now it's your turn. All right. So um, so I kind of have a a list of uh of things. Not not a not a long list. Uh, to to be frank, uh, and it's uh some positive stuff and 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 a couple of negative things, or maybe at least one negative thing. Um, so I think there's a stereotype that Canadians are super friendly. Um, and nice and polite. Um, and I do think that's true to an extent. Uh, I think, actually, uh, uh, actually I heard this um, from the essayist who uh, sadly passed away a few years ago. I, I think he was, uh, Dave, his name is David Rakoff. He's Canadian, but I, sp- I think spent the last 10 or 20 years of his life in, in New York. And um, he was featured a lot in This American Life. And he has this quote, which I'm probably going to butcher, but it's something like, um, Torontonians, and maybe you can apply this more broadly to Canadians, but Torontonians are polite, but not friendly. And uh, New Yorkers are rude, but friendly. And I think that's, that, that's true of, you know, Canadians and uh, Americans more generally. So I think Canadians are super polite. Um, so it's very common for Canadians to hold doors for one another. It's, it's actually rude if you don't hold the door for someone. And every once in a while, you'll notice that and you're like, oh my God, that person's so rude. And they're probably just like, you know, an American or something, and someone's just not used to the norms in Canada. But holding doors is a normal thing. Um, people will greet you with a smile. People are generally polite and, and, and they will, you know, help you and maybe go out of their way to help you. I think Canadians are not particularly friendly. By that I mean, I think there's like Canadians are reserved. They're, they're hard to get to know Canadians. Um, I've heard this from now a number of um, you know people uh, in, in Toronto who who are from elsewhere, be that America, uh, the U.S. or, or Europe, um, that they they have a tough time breaking into certain social circles uh, in Canada. Maybe that's true in in any place. I'm not sure, but I've heard it enough times that uh, I, I think there's probably some truth to it. Um, and uh, whereas I feel in the U.S., people might not be as polite. So New Yorkers are, are, are famously rude. I mean, they are rude. Uh, so Torontonians or Canadians, you know, hold doors for one another. I feel in New York, they slam the door in your face. So the last time or one of the last times I was in New York, I was kind of uh, there with, my, at that point, my like six-month-old son. Um, and it was unbelievable how many people, like we'd be kind of going you know, towards a door and people would rush to get right in front of us and then not bother to hold the door and kind of like let the door slam and we get to open it. So it was, you know, kind of rude and, and just not nice. And and when, when I lived in New York, uh, I mean, people would are not afraid to scream at you and, and tell you what they think about you. But on the flip side, I feel that uh, Americans are generally friendlier than Canadians. Um, I am much more likely to get into a random conversation with a stranger in the U.S. at a restaurant, at a bar, uh, in a store. Um, people are genuinely interested in in, in, in in you. And I just, I really like it. I, I really I really do like the U.S. I, I know I'm probably not supposed to say that uh, as a Canadian or anyone who's not American is supposed to dislike uh the U.S., but I, I love Americans, um, and I, that's one aspect that I, I always notice a difference uh, between Canadians and, and Americans. We, so we used to, um, growing up uh, in Montreal, we'd go cross-border shopping to Plattsburgh, New York, the closest border town, um, and 
even though it was so close to the border, it just, just felt different. Uh, yeah, people are more gregarious, more talkative, not as shy, not as reserved. Um, so that's one thing I really, yeah, I really appreciate and like about, uh, about American people. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. It's polite, but reserved to the point of like you, you could say cold, maybe. Um, if you were being uncharitable, uh, and I, I think it's sort of, I think of it actually as an upper Midwestern thing because, you know, there's this, uh, phrase Minnesota nice, which doesn't actually mean nice. It means polite, but also kind of passive aggressive. Um, and I do find that sometimes like the, the bad side of that, like, uh, these politeness norms are if you violate them, you get this kind of like passive aggressive, like dickishness, um, pretty quickly. Right. So it's, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, that's funny, you know. So, um, our uh, friend of the podcast, Liz Page Gould, uh, who's uh, a, a good friend of mine as well, um, she made this comment once, and I never realized it before. And that is that she she commented like, if you go to a place like Tim Hortons or Starbucks or any coffee place, Canadians will you know wait patiently in line to to, to kind of dress up your coffee for the milk and the sugar. Um, whereas in the U.S. and and I'm this way, it's just kind of like, oh, there's a tiny little corner. I'm gonna grab my, you know, put my spot there, reach over the other person's coffee, you know, reach over to grab the stir or the or, or the cover. And until she mentioned it, I didn't realize that I was being a dick, at least by Canadian standards. Um, and now I've noticed, yeah, it's true that people just line up and they wait. They want to have the coffee little dress up station to to themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so as an outsider here, I do worry about sometimes violating some of these norms, not really realizing it. And, uh, you know, they're they're never going to say anything, but they may like passive aggressively judge me or sort of do the like a little bit of a disapproving head shake. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I so I mean, I'm, you know, born and raised in Canada, but I feel I've got uh, a couple of things that make me uh, a, a bit different than, than other Canadians. First of all, I, you know, um, my parents are both immigrants and kind of grew up with a different set of norms. But also I did grow up in, in, in Montreal, Quebec, where um, it's you know very Canadian, but it's French Canadian. And there, I think things are, are quite different. Uh, so there people, you know, I think the, a common way of describing Quebecers are, you know, they have joie de vivre. They have like kind of a, a love of life. Um, and they're, they're far less reserved. Uh, they're more likely to express their emotions, positive and negative. Um, but they certainly, you know, enjoy life, uh, you know, stay, staying up later. Norms for like, uh, enjoying life are, are, are more, are more prevalent there. And I think, you know, there, me kind of butting into the coffee little, you know, a dress up station as I thought that was more normal there. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the French Canadians are different, right? They're definitely less polite. Yeah, yeah, less polite and uh, yeah, more maybe more direct as well. Would you say that they're warmer? Uh, I think so. I mean, I, I think... I think you're more likely to have, you know, to, to strike up a random conversation and, you know, you know, but, you know, after a couple of drinks, you're kind of like hugging this stranger and dancing in the bar. I, I think I, I've had more of those, those experiences in Quebec than I have had here, but there's also a massive confound. I was uh, a lot younger and uh, more full of life myself uh, when I was you know, living in Montreal. So Right, right. Now that your essence has been drained slowly. <laughs> exactly. There's much less Mickey uh, in Mickey these days. Judah and the Maccabees proclaimed the second temple. They lit the menorah using all the oil they had. Now get this, there was only enough oil for one night, but the menorah burned for eight nights. <laughs> 
How the heck do you explain that shiz? How the heck do you explain that shiz? It was the greatest miracle of all time. I know there was a talking burning bush. God parted the Red Sea. But one night's worth of oil burned for eight nights straight. How the heck do you explain that shiz? How the heck do you explain that shiz? How the heck do you explain that shiz? Dreidels of fire spun a dreidel with my love. She took half, she gave me none. I bet she really cares about Hanukkah. Yeah. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're both on Twitter at Four Beers Pod is the show's handle. You can DM us or at mention us. We both check that account. If you'd like to email us, fourbeerspod at gmail.com is the show's email address. Again, that goes to both of us. Finally, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can listen to our latest episode, listen to our back catalog, and uh, drop us a line there as well if you'd like. Uh, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, we like it. It also helps other people discover the show uh and you know if you're uh enjoying the show you know recommend us to a friend maybe you know word of mouth face to face the old-fashioned way that's nice too <laughs> you can also say how much you hate it that, that's all. i mean just, not, not on the reviews but to your friends yeah yeah just like oh god these piece, people are such pieces of shit like i can't believe yeah yeah, yeah. i mean occasionally some, some twitter people will say that about us but uh right right ignore them we well yeah we don't know what people are saying about us in private you know maybe that's the like all they say Yes, that, that, that's possible. Yeah. After this episode, it's like, I can't believe the shit Mickey talked about Americans. Canceled. Done. <laughs> I, I'm, I look forward to being canceled by my uh, Twitter overlords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on. Um, okay. Anything else we got to get out there in terms of announcements? Uh, no, I think that's it. Uh, I want to kind of uh, just say another thank you to Stuart Campbell. So I'm uh, drinking a second a Big Spruce, uh, you know, kitchen party which is a, a very hoppy beer. Very drinkable and delicious. And uh, thank you so much, Stuart. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Stuart, very much. I am saving the last beer for later because the hoppiness got to be a little intense for me. And I'm uh, doing a little change of pace. I'm drinking a Stella, which is like nice and watery. So counteracts that a bit. Exactly. This is, this is your sobering up beer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Big day tomorrow. So uh, we were we were in the midst of promoting harmful stereotypes about about each other's countries. I feel like it's a it's it's your turn again. My turn again? No, yeah, because we were talking about the Canadians for a while, right? Uh, okay, I mean, yeah. I, I could. Um, so I mean, mine are I think mostly positive. Uh, I just feel it's it's it's. I guess I, there's so much anti-Americanism out there. Uh, that uh, and I think I think the U.S. Is a, is a great place. I mean, I think it's also fucked up. Don't get me wrong, um, but I think there's lots of you know lots to recommend it. Um, so um, one thing I want to say is uh, a number of years ago, a friend of mine who is a dual citizen spent most of his life in uh, in Canada, but uh, also a significant portion of his life in the U.S. And uh, we were talking about you know places to go for vacation. Um, uh, you know, you know, places that he finds interesting. And he said this thing, which at the time I'm like, you're just, what the fuck, dude? And he's like, the U.S. is the best place to go on holiday. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? There's so many places in the world to go. Why? And I, he convinced me of this argument. And his argument was that 
And the U.S. is so incredibly diverse um, and beautiful. And it, it can, contains nearly all the topographies of the world in this one very, very large country. And I think that's true. I mean, so, I mean, I think Canada is also big and diverse. Uh, but with maybe a few exceptions here and there, I think, the U.S. has got all the topographies of Canada, plus way, way more. So um, you've got the Rocky Mountains, you've got the Pacific Northwest, um, you've got the amazing, uh, you know, deserts in, in, in the Southwest. You've got, you know, essentially, uh, you know, the, the Florida Keys, which are essentially like a you know, Caribbean kind of setting. You've got Southern California. You've got, you know, a- a- Atlantic kind of maritime uh, kind of vibes in Maine. Um, I just feel there's like a little bit of everything in the U.S. and there's so much diversity. And really, you can find beauty in every corner, in every state of the U.S. And it's amazing. Um, and I, you know, and there's this tradition in the U.S. that I really admire. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's um, the tradition of a road trip, which is, you know, uh, kind of made famous in a number of novels, maybe most famously, you know, in On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Um, I've never done one. I've never done a cross-country road trip, but I've always wanted to do one. And there is, you know, some Canadians do this as well, except they say, you know, just, you know, the middle part of the country is like big sky country. It's like, it's beautiful, but it's a lot of the same for a while. So it doesn't have the same kind of mythology. Uh, whereas in the U.S., it seems like, um, yeah, there's a variety in, in, in every kind of, like every few hours, you're going to find something else. I actually can't believe you've never done a road trip. I've done road trips, but never like a cross country. Never a cross country. Yeah. yeah. Never a yeah. cross country. Um, I once did a north-south road trip. So that was, you know, um, going from Montreal, this is when I was an undergrad, to uh, Florida. Uh, that was, uh, uh, I went to Daytona, Florida for like a spring break, you know, crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> There's this like the the fireball and the Jägermeister and the going to Daytona for spring break and all like it all comes together. You know? Exactly, it all comes together. This is like you know, uh, it was I saw some posters at McGill where I went to undergrad advertising. You know, spring break in Daytona. Sounded fun. I recruited a few friends of mine. It was like you know a couple hundred bucks to go to Daytona. You got a big bus and you know a couple hundred bucks in a hotel. Like I mean that sounds like amazing, um, and it was fun. Uh, I definitely have lots of good memories of that one week. Um, Mad Dog. I, I that's where I where I got I reacquainted with Mad Dog 2020. If you don't know what that is, look it up. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, yeah. Well, a road trip. I mean, you could even do that with kids, actually. Just like pile them all in the car and uh, go uh, go uh, east west across the U.S. because it is it is worth doing at least once in your life. Or you could do like my parents. Wait for the kids to be out of the house, and now they're really into road trips. Actually. They were talking about driving all the way out east. So, yeah, maybe just wait another 15 years or so yeah. <laughs> and then do it. Okay, so I have something much less profound, but I am curious about this. What is the deal with snow tires here? Have you, it, does this seem like strange to you? Because, so I lived in New York State, upstate New York, Ithaca, where it snows heavily for like five years of grad school. I never heard shit about snow tires. Nobody ever put like winter tires on their car. And here, uh, I guess in Ontario, it's just heavily encouraged and people sort of like, this is the Canadian thing again. Like if you don't put on snow tires, like then I never really say anything about the sort of looking at me like, oh. You don't put on snow tires. You don't right? care about your safety or exactly. the safety of or, or exactly, exactly the people who you might hit driving your all-season tires, and uh, and and in um, 
in Quebec, actually, it's legally required starting December 1 that you have snow tires on your car, right? So it seems like just as a nation, they are crazy for snow tires. And I don't get why that is. You know, once the temperatures drop below a certain point, the rubber on your tires act differently. Um, so the, the whole point of the tire is to grip the road, to actually stay, you know, stay, you know, to stick to the road so that you don't slip around. And regular tires, so summer tires or all season tires, the compound, the, the rubber compound is such that I think once it drops below seven degrees Celsius, um, it, it, the rubber becomes hard and you don't actually grip to the road. So it's essentially just not safe is what it is. And it surprises me that in the northern states of the U.S., um, like New York or Minnesota or Michigan, um, that this would not be more of a norm. Now, I know you're just giving me your experience from New York, but plenty of snow in New York, so... That's right. Yeah. I mean, it snows more than Ithaca in Ithaca than it does in Toronto, for sure. So I'd be curious to hear from some of our listeners in like, let's say, uh, Minnesota. Is is it a norm there? Because I had I, I had never heard of this before I before I moved to Toronto. So Mickey, do you have your winter tires on yet or no? I do. I do. In fact, I feel insecure uh, when I don't have my winter tires on once the first snowfall uh, hits. So this year we had a a snowfall that was particularly early, like early, like it was like first week of November. I actually remember uh, uh, I had a, a visitor from Europe, from Germany, who was here, who came, I think, in July or August, where it's like, you know, very hot, you know, shorts, T-shirt weather. And he just packed very lightly. He, he came to Canada knowing he's going to be here until like early, mid-November, did not pack a jacket. He only had one sweatshirt. Anyways, it was unseasonably cold, and it was strange that it snowed so much in early November. But nonetheless, it's not that unusual. And he was just complaining bitterly about how terrible it was and how cold it was. I'm like, yeah, dumbass, you know, fucking coat, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's on him. I mean, come on, that's yeah. just. Dumb. But I went to the same thing with with the snow tires. I mean, so that day I didn't have the snow tires on, and I was like, I could barely get up a hill. Um, you know, the the streets hadn't been paved uh, or cleared uh, well yet, and not salted. Um, and this is all foreign kind of concepts that people who don't deal with snow on a regular basis. Yes, our roads get salted. They get cleared with big trucks. Um, but it hadn't been that day. And I had trouble getting up a hill without my, without my snow tires on. So now I have them on. I feel, you know, I can, I can conquer the world now, UL. Yeah, well, um, I, I worry about this feeling of invincibility, but I, I'm actually getting mine put on. Um, I think I think I'm going to go tomorrow and have it done because I've been putting it off. And we got lucky, like it warmed up a little bit. The snow's gone, so I'm going to be able to get the car out and actually get that taken care of. So I'm 100%. I've now been indoctrinated into this weird cult, you know? Now I'm like, oh man, I don't have my snow tires on yet. This is bad. Yeah. Because I feel guilty, you know? Right. And it's also funny because... Uh, there's also the, the pressure to take them off once it gets hot, because once the temperatures rise above a certain point, like they essentially melt, like they're, they're made of a much softer rubber. So like they can, when it gets cold, they're, they're still, uh, they still grip the road, but once it gets too hot, like they just kind of burn through them. Yeah. So there, there is a little bit of a problem around like, you know, April where you're like, you are getting some like hotter days, but then it might still snow. And you're like, oh, as soon as I get them taken off, it's going to dump snow again. And yeah, so it's a, uh, it's a problem. Yes. Well, you know, thank you for, for caring about all of us and putting your snow tires on. I, I do. I do. I've been shamed. <laughs> all right. So my turn. Um, 
So this is um, not so much uh, about the U.S. as it is maybe kind of making fun of... I don't know about making fun, but it's... Uh, I'll just say it. So I, as I mentioned, I did grad school and uh, postdoc in the U.S. And I must admit... I've never felt more Canadian than when I moved to the U.S. Because it, I mean, I think to outsiders, they would they would probably remark on very few differences between Canada and the U.S. Culturally, we're very, very similar. Um, there are, of course, some political differences and, of course, differences in history. But culturally, we're, we're, we're quite similar, especially to the, to, to the eyes of outsiders. But once I moved to the U.S. and spent a significant amount of time in, in the U.S., I just felt so proud to be Canadian. And I did, then I did this thing that I later learned that annoys Americans to no end. Um, and that is, anytime there was a conversation about someone famous, and that famous person happened to be Canadian, I had to. I just had to mention that, oh, do you know that person's Canadian? So, you know, a conversation about Neil Young. Oh yeah, Neil Young. Did you know he is Canadian? Alex Trebek. Alex Trebek, do you know he too is Canadian? Um, you know, the, the, the Ryans, Ryan Reynolds and uh, um, Ryan Gosling, that's who it is, also Canadian. Um, anyhow, uh, I just found myself uh, kind of mentioning this. And then a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who's a very gentle soul, uh, kind of has a Buddha soul, um, he kind of remarked upon this. And, he, and he's like, why do you always need feel the need to tell me who is Canadian, who is not. And I'm like, I don't know why. <laughs> but I just feel if I don't mention it, people will just think he is not or she is not a Canadian and think they're American. Um, and I don't I, 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 no, I just want, uh, I want a little bit of, uh, I, I have some pride for, for, for my compatriots. So, you know, it's funny, like I've started doing that now. Uh, and I, I don't know why. I just I just think it's fun. Like, yeah, Neil Young came up this weekend, right, with a friend. I was like, oh, no, he's totally Canadian. I was sort of like almost shocked and offended on behalf of Canada that like he didn't know. He's like, like really? I was like, yeah, of course. You didn't know Neil Young's Canadian. Come on. <laughs> That's awesome. So you are, in fact, doing this on the behalf of other Canadians. Like you feel some pride too then. I've taken up the torch. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I want to promote you guys. I do feel like Canada like uh, punches above its weight. Uh, just, uh, you know, if you compare the musicians or actors who've come out of the country to, to the population, um, it, it feels to me anyway, like it's disproportionate. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. I know at one point there was like a lot of comedians, um, uh, Canadian comedians who were kind of very well known and just seemed odd. There's so many of them. Although I think now that I think about it, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think a lot of this has to do with Lauren Michaels, who is Canadian, and he's the uh, the head honcho of uh, Saturday Night Live. And a lot of he recruited a lot of Canadians to the show. So I think that's why maybe a lot of Canadians were famous comedians. So Canadian nepotism is yeah, what you're saying. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. But nonetheless, I, I do feel a little, uh, uh, you know, a bit of pride every time there's some famous Canadian who's made it big um, in uh, outside of Canada. That's right. Okay, so is it my turn? Yes, it is. Yeah, so my next complaint is about <laughs> the price of cheese, which I feel is outlandish in Canada. So, like, if you go to the grocery store and you get just, like, a regular little thing of cheddar, it's going to be, like, 10 bucks. That is insane. You go to any American grocery store and it's, like, I don't know, like, 
five dollars tops, right? Like not very. We're not talking about fancy cheese here. We're just talking about the regular grocery store cheddar. And I learned that there is actually like a Canadian dairy cartel. This actually became an issue in a trade dispute between the U.S. and Canada under Trump, like a, a year ago, where Trump was demanding that uh, Canada lower its dairy tariffs and allow American farmers to compete with the Canadian dairy cartel. But then in the end, he was like Trudeau would give no ground on the dairy issue, you know, and Trump was was stymied in the end. Um, and I'm still paying too much for cheese. So uh, I, I, I find that to be objectionable. That's hilarious. I, I've only grown up in a world where cheese is expensive. So. It doesn't have to be that way, man. It doesn't have to. It can be cheap. That's funny. Uh, I never realized. Um, but yes, I know. I think this is largely led by Quebec, where there's a, a really big dairy industry. And I guess they're, they, they engage in protectionist practices um, to protect their industry. Another strange thing about the dairy industry in Quebec is, and this is only a Quebec thing. Um, I'm not sure if it still is the case, but I think it is. Uh, there was a law in Quebec that margarine had to be white. It could not be yellow, like the color of butter. To make absolutely crystal clear that this is margarine you're dealing with and not butter. So I never, I always thought, I grew up with, with white margarine. I never knew, I always thought margarine was white. It's a weird looking thing. Um, I never realized it was, uh, it was, mani- I mean, it's manufactured to be any color no matter what, but uh, I never realized this before. You know, that I actually approve of because I think that margarine is garbage. But this does get to um, something that many Americans probably don't realize about Canadian politics, and that is the outsize influence that Quebec has. So basically, whatever Quebec wants, Quebec gets, right? And so they have a really, it's almost like, you know, in U.S. politics when, I guess Florida is maybe a little less of a swing state than it used to be. It's a little redder, right? But it used to be like the swingiest of swing states. And it came down to, you know, what do some Cuban exiles who live in Miami think, right? (laughs) So basically, like the entire U.S. foreign policy towards Cuba was determined by these Cuban exiles. And it was because Florida was electorally important, right? So like this massive distorting effect. And I feel like Quebec is a little bit of the same thing. I, I mean, it's not quite as bad because it's a big province. It's quite populous and so on. But I really feel like they have clout above and beyond their their numbers, is that would you say? Yeah, that's right? absolutely. I mean, I think. Well, I think first of all, it is. Uh, I mean, it is the second most populous province. So, uh, if you want to know, if you want to win the federal election, you have to win Ontario and Quebec. And if you don't do that, good luck to you. You're not gonna. You're not gonna form government. But also, I mean, we have this long history of Quebec uh, not just threatening to separate. I mean, there were actual referendums about its separation, and the last one was in 1995, where. You know, the margin of victory was 1%. It was 50.5 to 49.5. So to some extent, and, you know, it makes sense for Canada to to keep Canada in the fold. Um, so they've been, I think, had an outsized influence. So I, I agree. It's, it's kind of strange. Um, although, again, I, I'm biased because I'm from Quebec. Um, I feel, bene- you know, Quebec has got a benevolent influence, more, more or less. Um, uh, I think uh, the, not always, especially now, the, the policies about... Um, you know, religious freedoms are, are, I think, especially uh, uh, problematic. But uh, in you know, other than that, the the history has been it's been a pretty progressive place. So I didn't mind it having an outsized influence, but again, I'm very very biased. So 
Well, high cheese prices, though, so there's that. Yes, high cheese prices. I, I never even knew this. Uh, so now I should, I'll, be, I'll feel bitter every time I go to the grocery store. Yeah, sorry, I've ruined your life. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so this is my final uh, observation. Um, and this is my only real negative one. So I feel I've been spreading lots of love to the U.S., so i got to at least have one dig. Um, and this one um, is... I don't know, maybe it's a bit difficult to talk about, but uh, I feel there is, I, I don't want to say all Americans, but maybe half the half Americans are much less concerned about the common good the, uh, than I would anticipate, uh, than I'm used to. So I think in Canada, we're much more um, receptive to arguments about what's good for all of us, what's good for, you know, the public. Um, whereas in the U.S., there's a, a, an argument that convinces at least half the people um, that, uh, well, if you know, if you didn't pay for it, if you know, you, you don't have the money, then why should I support you? And to me, that's that's a crazy argument. So, you know, for example, you know, uh, healthcare. I, I consider healthcare to be a, a human right, um, and my taxes go to pay for that, and and I'm happy for my taxes to pay for that. And it's strange to me that a, a significant number of people in the U.S. don't feel some responsibility for their fellow citizens, that they wouldn't be willing to pay for their citizens, even though they are not sick, that their tax dollars would go to their fellow Americans who might be sick. Um, and uh, the first time I kind of was awakened to this and, and realized that, uh, you know, we have a responsibility uh, was, so I, I spent, uh, this is many years ago now, uh, so after I got my undergrad degree, I, I fucked around for a little bit, traveled, and uh, um, I spent some time in a, in a kibbutz in Israel, fell in love with this uh, this Danish woman, and and uh, moved to Copenhagen for, for, for a summer, and there, so in Scandinavia, and their attitude about taxes was, was I think, very refreshing to me. Um, their attitude was, we're proud to pay taxes. We want to pay taxes because it makes all of us, it elevates all of us. It, it, it helps all of us collectively. And they thought about the common good. Um, and, I, and, and, and once I heard that argument, I started seeing that more in Canada as well. Like this notion of, you know, you know our taxes pay for all the good stuff that we have, our roads, our hospitals, our schools. Um, and that, argu that argument resonates with me. And you know, I've got a kind of a funny story. So we had a federal election uh, in Canada, uh, what a month or two ago, and um, I was sitting on my balcony, and and the conservative candidate was you know walking around my neighborhood and trying to get votes, and he started talking to me, and he was like, "Don't you think we're paying? You know, don't you want to pay less tax?" And I'm like, "Not necessarily. I I feel I'm happy to pay the taxes that that I'm paying, and." Um, it's a good thing. And he just kind of said, you're just a good person. And he kind of walked away. And, and it was like, he, you know, he did not win. Frank Fang did not win the uh, the the seat in Toronto, which is, uh, you know, uh, more left-leaning, uh, regional Toronto is left-leaning. But I think that's an attitude that's like generally held in Canada. I don't think an argument of like, we need to pay less taxes, even among conservatives, is particularly convincing. I think there's like a sense of the common good. And I'm not, I don't want to kind of ascribe this to, to all Americans. I know there's a large percentage, maybe half, half of, uh, of the country, you know, shares my view. But, but it strikes me um, that the other half doesn't care about that. Right. So this is something 
when I lived in the Netherlands that uh, that I would talk to people about, and and it, it was it, it was funny because they they just didn't get it. They didn't get that attitude, right? They were like, "But isn't you know? I mean, don't don't you feel a sense of responsibility for everybody else?" And I was like, "Well, eh, not in the same way." So, like, I guess um, I I've been critical of Canada and their their snow tires and the price of cheese and so on. And, and so now I will say something nice. Um, I've uh, read the argument and I find it very convincing that uh, a generous like social welfare net like a, a welfare state it's much easier to maintain when the population is like culturally homogenous so when it's like oh it's going to people like me right and it's it's much more difficult the more diverse the country is and the u.s just by nature is much more diverse in terms of background and culture than really any european country right but canada uh is the one counterexample that i can think of which is it's quite diverse a ton of immigration right like a kind of a nationwide valuing of uh, diversity in different cultures. And at the same time, among, I feel like most people here, a feeling that we're all in it together, we need to support each other. Um, I'm okay with paying higher taxes uh, in order to have like a, you know, a well-functioning country and and to support people who are less fortunate. So I feel like that you guys like really nailed that somehow. And I'm, I'm not still not quite sure how that happened, but, um, you know, good for you. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how it happened either, but it, it, it just... Just kind of feels natural. It just feels normal to like care about everyone else. Because I think um, it's something dispiriting. I mean, even I mean, you know, there's lots of inequality in in Canada and Toronto. Down in Toronto, you see lots of uh, you know people who are not particularly well off. Um, um, and it it is it, you know it you know it, it is dispiriting when you see this. And and I think I you know it's it, for me it's natural to have a uh, to care for your fellow your fellow citizen your fellow country country person. Um, so, and I just find that this kind of attitude of individualism, like like extreme individualism in the U.S., uh, to be to, at least to be foreign to me. But at the same time, there are positives. So, so you know, one thing that's so amazing about the U.S. is this kind of, and it maybe comes again from this kind of this 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 uh, tradition of individualism, is the amount of innovation and the amount of like. Um, you know, change that happens because of like, you know, individuals who speak up and do things. Um, and I think you see much less of that uh, in, in places that are more, maybe more, maybe more collective. So there's some, there, there is a silver lining to it, but um, I think I would take, uh, take what, what we have here, at least on this one dimension. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, this is something else that like, you know, the, the differences between the U.S. and Canada, they're real, but I, I think they're smaller than the differences between the U.S. and Europe, for example. And so this is something that we would talk about a lot. Like they they are uh, the downside is limited. And a, at least the Dutch, I can speak to that the best since I lived there. They do seem less entrepreneurial. They're less risk taking. They're less like, well, why should I? They're like, uh, should do I really want to work like these crazy, you know, hundred hour weeks in order to start a company when I could take a job and, uh, you know, get three months of vacation and, you know, go home at three o'clock on Fridays? Like, why, why would I choose anything else? Right? Like, it, it's uh, it, it's a very different attitude to life that on the individual level is probably healthier. Um, but then on the societal level um, means that you get less cool shit. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. Would we be better off maybe all living that way and then we don't have iPhones? Like, you know. 
I mean, maybe I, I like I like the I like the smartphone, but uh, I'm not sure if it's worth the cost of, uh, you know, the, the the massive inequality. But I think you're right. I mean, I think like when your your dinner's on the line, when you're like living is on the line, you're willing to take risks that you wouldn't otherwise be willing to take. Yeah, and also if you get real rich, you get to keep more of your money. So there's that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's all I have. Do you have any, uh, any other, last no, comments? no, I, I feel, I feel like I got all of my gripes out of my system and then got, to, <laughs> got to compliment, you know, my, my adopted country. So I'm, I'm happy with where we're at. All right. Excellent. Well, so, uh, maybe we can leave with, uh, wishing all our listeners, uh, you know, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever you, whatever it is you, uh, celebrate, uh, have a good one. I hope you have a relaxing time. Uh, Happy New Year as well, which is uh, coming up close. Yeah, and then we'll see you in 2020. Yes, see you soon. Holy shit. Bye.